0: This news has become known. Let's dig a little bit more into this story. George Ferguson follows the airline space for us. He's senior aerospace defense and airlines analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence in our Bloomberg Intelligence Headquarters in Princeton, New Jersey. George, nice to have you here with us. Um, Assess the situation as we stand, because I think most folks would say, most regulators would still say there's still a lot to be known about what this means for this Boeing jet.
2: Yeah, I think there is. You know, I think uh, where we are is we still don't even have uh, the Lion Air crash investigation fully completed. And so there's still, I think, a lot to learn about what's happened. But we definitely see things centering around um, some of the changes to the flight computer on the airplanes, where uh, the airplane is, uh, is the nose is pushed over to keep it from stalling, keep the wing angle from being at too high of an angle of attack. And I think what we're learning from the marketplace as we as this comes out, we're hearing from more and more participants in the marketplace that they're concerned about this computer program, which does push the nose over, they're concerned about a pilot's understanding about how to disable it, and that's creating this this situation where we've had it's contributing, I think, to these two accidents. So clearly, it seems like something that Boeing built into the flight computer here um it is, um is concerning it, you know, is creating workloads in the cockpit that can't be fully managed Is it a case uh, of, of not
0: not being fully managed or is it a case of potentially also the pilots not fully trained
2: yeah so i I do think there's a training component to it, and I think that's why um you've seen most airlines operate the airplane safely but um but I think we're starting to hear as well from the from the some of the u s pilot unions and such. That they're concerned that the airplane is getting pushed over during phases of flight that are critical you know takeoff uh, where you're managing a lot of other things in the cockpit and and so even these u s unions are concerned about the level of workload in the cockpit at, you know at these times so I think there's a training issue here, but there's also a bit of a design issue where, where pilots just think this is you know this this was designed incorrectly perhaps. And so,
1: George, help us understand the decision making that's happening at the airlines and at the regulatory level in terms of whether to fly these planes, which obviously many or allow these planes in in airspace in various countries and regions. Have you been surprised at the way that this has played out so far?
2: I I have been. You know, I really thought that when the FAA came out last night and said, "Look, we're not going to ground the airplane," but uh, we want the software fixed by April. I thought that would be enough for the rest of the localities in the world, uh, but um, but clearly, clearly not. Um, I think the FAA may be looking at sort of U.S. airline experience, and again, we're not having a problem with it. And a lot of these airplanes are being flown in the U.S. at carriers like Southwest, and they seem to be managing managing the challenge with this flight system, you know, fine. Um, but look, I think there's a little bit of a you know, of, of a quick reaction uh, globally. And I think where some mm-hmm. some countries just don't want to deal with it. They don't want to have to manage the fact that they don't know what's going on with this airplane yet. They don't want their citizens, don't want to fly it. And I think it's a little bit easier for them to say, because there's not as many operating in their markets, hey, we're just not going to let this airplane fly in our market. How long and, is this... It's not good news for Boeing. Right. right. How,
0: long, how long has this plane been out there?
2: Uh, they've been, you know, the airplane's been uh, being delivered into fleets since uh, mid-year last year. So... You know, Southwest was uh, one of the early uh, customers. They've been flying it for, um, I think it's at least six months, seven months, Uh, and it, it went through flight programs before that, right? So Boeing flight tests these airplanes well before they go into initial fleets, and so it's been flying. It's probably been flying well over a year or more.
1: And so, and obviously this feels rather unprecedented, where does it go from here, do you think? I mean, what does Boeing do? What does the FAA potentially do? Given that its counterparts around the world are making essentially the exact opposite decision, they did.
2: Yeah, I think that there is probably growing pressure on the FAA right now, and I think that Boeing needs uh, Boeing really needs to get ahead of the curve on this. They got to, they got to, they got to get in and figure out, you know, how how responsible this MCAS system is to these incidents. Um, and I, you know, I think, it, and if if it's a software fix, they got to get on the software fix and get it deployed, so that so that they can uh, restore confidence in the airplane. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's a really big challenge right now for Boeing, and I think the pressure is growing in the FAA.
0: You know, it's interesting too. We did have the president tweeting about you know planes becoming increasingly complicated. Um, there's an upside to that, right? Because planes have become safer as a result, but they have become complicated because of more. You know, intricate systems.
2: I, I think it's also worth bearing in mind that part of the reason this complication occurred, the reason they had to add this safety system, is because they increased the size of the engines and they pushed them forward on the airplane because the Boeing 737 has a lower wing than the Airbus A320. And the new world for jet engines is about bigger fan sizes for more efficiency. And so that's part of what created this. And I think it reinforces the idea that Boeing needs a new 737, a clean sheet 737, and maybe sooner rather than later.
1: George Ferguson is Senior Aerospace Defense and Airlines Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us on the phone from BI headquarters down in Princeton, New Jersey. We know it's a very, very busy time for you, George. We really appreciate you spending some time with us.
0: We have a lot of house lawmakers seeking an FAA briefing on this uh, crash. Uh, a lot of uh, lawmakers uh, in the nation's capital talking about this, so we'll continue to track it and, of course, bring you updates as they are known. In the meantime, the stock is down about 5.8%. was down as much as 8% in today's session. Uh, at this hour, a loss, as I mentioned, of almost 6%. $376.53 a share, but it is down, uh, Jason, about uh, 11.5% in the last two days. Stock's still up about 17 percent here in
3: 2019
0: all right
1: little, is that Janet Jackson?
0: little Janet Jackson and it's all about control the Fed figuring out different levers to really control what's going on in our economy and you know of course interest rates has been a big thing we've seen quantitative easing but there's a new lever that they're talking about. Let's get into it. She's been talking about this for a while now. Alex Harris is bond reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Just remind us kind of what you guys all noticed that was happening. Was it at the New York Fed?
3: Yeah. So about a week and a half ago, we were talking to some of the primary dealers on the street, And they were telling us that they had been taking meetings with the markets group at the New York Fed. And they were coming to them and asking them questions about what they're calling a new ceiling tool to help control interest rates. Um, And from what we were hearing from people, I mean, they had lists of very specific questions. So their sense is that they're very much going to be doing this, and this is very much a priority for them. And in the December and January FOMC minutes, policymakers were talking about this and saying, well, Maybe a new ceiling tool will help us control interest rates um, if there's any upward pressure, or this could kind of help us keep reserves and keep markets in check as reserves run down because we're not really sure where that level is. So now the street is talking about this. I mean, everybody, and I was actually on the phone with someone earlier who said, I can't remember the last time that every strategist co- covering the short end of the market was like, unanimously writing about this because right. on any given week you could have someone's prioritizing maybe like moves in LIBOR or something else going on in the short end but everybody is talking about this because I think there's just so much uncertainty as to what this is going to look like I mean and it spans from people being like this is a terrible idea for the Fed that they should not be doing this to other people being like this is coming I it's probably going to be here in the second half of the year.
1: All right. So let me ask you a very basic question. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like that's my job is to ask very basic questions. This ultimately comes down to how much it costs to loan money in the short term.
3: Well, so what this is, is a couple of things. One, they're trying to, the Fed is trying to find a way to incentivize banks to hold treasuries instead of reserves, which will still satisfy regulatory requirements, but you're not burdened with the cost of holding treasuries if you're holding reserves. Right. So so that's part of it. And then this other factor is very much that we don't know what the volatility is going to look like as the balance sheet continues to unwind. And I think what's scaring people or particularly scaring policymakers is overnight funding costs hit like 6% at the end of the year and we had we had talked about this on that day that i mean they spiked and people are like whoa like this is out of control like we knew we'd get some volatility and so i, I think this is really all about trying to find ways to minimize volatility in so sort of this is own- this
0: essentially a tool that just kind of incrementally kind of controls things in between raising or lowering rates or what like Help us understand it Especially because Investors are going to have to If indeed this is something That gets carried
3: out We have to understand it Well and this is just it We're not sure exactly What they want to do with this and and right now there's serious philosophical issues going on on the street about what this could be because some people are saying well if the feds really just worried about that quarter end volatility in the funding markets or that year end volatility in the funding markets they could make this available for like a stretch of four or five days at the end of every quarter but if they really want to make it about reserves, it's going to be a daily operation where you know right. they can lend, uh, banks can can lend treasuries, and they'll get cash back or reserves back in return, and it'll be a daily operation to kind of keep everything under control. So, so when will we know? That's a very good question. We're not even sure. And you know, when I was talking to people about it today, because I understand the Fed's pretty patient, so I'm assuming they're pretty patient about implementing new things here. And and I think they will be, but I think what i was you know i was talking to people about this today they were saying now that everybody is talking about it i would not be surprised if when we get the minutes from the march fomc that there's an inclusion of a discussion staff presentation because i think now their hand is being a little bit forced in there now that no they know that the new york fed is asking about it and now that everyone's talking about it
1: Alex Harris, bond reporter for Bloomberg, always bringing us what is on the minds of the smartest people. Told you it's wonky, but it's really important
0: because if Fed policy levers and tools start to change, uh, this could have an impact on certainly the overall environment. Jason, we got an update on the municipal bond market today with someone who has been watching and investing in that market.
4: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio
0: for decades. Let's uh, check in on our conversation with Charles Durain, CEO at Corpus Christi-based Durain Wealth Management. Nice to have you here with us.
4: It's a pleasure to be here with the two of you. Wonderful.
0: um, Talk to us a little bit about the muni market and what you're seeing overall. What are some of the interesting trends right
4: now? Well, the muni market's been very strong this year. We've had a lot of calls. We've had a, a lot of bonds which have matured. People have shifted their asset allocation after the fourth quarter of last year, so now they're buying more munis. You saw big so, shifts,
0: right? After oh, that sell off. Absolutely. Sell-off.
4: absolutely. Yeah. So we are in a perfect storm for municipal bonds. Now, Bloomberg has a function called pick, Pick. right? I'm, I'm a picker and a grinner. Okay? <laughs> <All> right. I'm a <laughs> long time only.
0: Bloomberg user. You right. know this, this terminal 30, just inside 30, and out. 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> there you go.
4: So, but I'm looking at Bloomberg pick, and the prices of these things are going up. Fours were at par, then 101, 102, 103, 104. It's like somebody's making a lot of money, okay? But it's the perfect storm of people shifting asset allocation, new money because it's the beginning of the year, plus the Puerto Rico deal, okay? People are selling a lot of those Puerto Rico. So let's talk
1: about Puerto Rico because that obviously has had a lot of uh, political attention, to say the least, but also a lot of economic attention, a lot of investor attention as well. What's the latest from your perspective?
4: Well – The latest is I've never really seen a disaster of this kind of proportion before. People who had one security, let's just say JGP Force, those were the sales tax revenues, got fourteen different bonds for their one bond. Wow. Wow. And and it looks like that they were overweighted the zeros. There were coupons, taxable and non taxable. And then there are the cabs, which are zeros. And it looks like they overweighted this thing um, th- that way. And it's a, it's a disaster because clients have no way of knowing what their cost is. And they won't know till the end of the year whether they made any money on what they had before and this. My wife is a CPA. She can't wait because she's interested in this stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but what's happened is now the Supreme Court has said that the Financial Control Board – They've ruled it to be unconstitutional, and they have until May 16th, which was my birthday, by the way, to um, to either reappoint, do this, do that, or we don't know what happens then. This deal is not over. We have not yet gotten all of our money. Right. Those of us who are involved in it haven't gotten all of our money. We've gotten some of our do money. Do you
0: expect to get all of your money?
4: Uh, we expect to get all of the money that they said we're going to get. Mm. But there's other monies as well that we should be entitled to. Sales tax revenues and Chicago, this comes to Chicago. Chicago just did a sales tax revenue thing. They've done a a few in the last year. And those read the same way as the Puerto Rico thing reads. So if Puerto Rico people only got 93 cents and, and 56 cents, why would you want to own a Chicago bond where if something bad happened, now there's a, there was no precedent for giving people less than 100 cents on the dollar. Well, now there is. So this really concerns me. And in fact, I'm watching Puerto Rico bonds, and I'm watching Chicago bonds as well. All right, okay?
1: I want to ask you about something that's certainly near and dear to the hearts and wallets of people who are listening to us in the tri-state area, and that is the SALT limit, the state and local mm-hmm. tax cap.
4: Well, it depends where you live, how yeah. you feel about that. If you live in Texas, the great state of Texas, where, where I do, and I'm sure I'm going to get some hate emails about this. We have been, oh, I don't know, paying up so you guys didn't have to pay. Right? Right. Okay, so you guys got the deduction. We were paying for it. So we had to pay more so you didn't have to pay as much. And that's kind of the way we look at it, so too bad.
1: So you feel fine about it, but Absolutely. I'm sure you have
4: clients oh, my, who are here. I, yeah, my clients are, are screaming about it, okay? And it's, <laughs> I was going to say,
0: how's it affecting the, the beauty industry? Well,
4: well, you know, but here's the thing. It's like people are driving this process with their feet. They're walking out. They're selling their houses. If you look at the markets where salt is a big deal, mm-hmm. people are selling, okay? They are selling houses, going to places, or oh, they're coming to taxes, Yeah, coming coming to Texas, coming to Florida. South Carolina, North Carolina. They're going to places where it's easy. So, you know, years ago in 1986, Exxon didn't like the tax situation in New Jersey. They moved to Texas. JCPenney did the same thing. So people go from high-tax to low-tax states. But all these years, we've really been paying for it and you all have been getting it. So now we don't feel so bad, okay? <laughs>
0: can, you
4: don't get any, say, no, say, I, I, we're not get any sympathy here. I can
0: see we're not going to get any sympathy here. I'm just but, happy but, to but, hear a
1: y'all in this studio, Carol. Uh,
0: <laughs> Well, it's interesting, though, because it certainly is impacting some of the tax revenue. There was a statistic I came across. The main tax revenue for U.S. states declined by an average of almost 2% during the last three months of 2018 from the same quarter a year earlier, and that's the first drop since the second quarter of 2016. Right. So what does this mean? I mean, throw that in, throw... How about
4: Amazon? How about Seattle? How about Seattle? There's an
0: interesting story on the Bloomberg today. Yes,
4: the Seattle story is very interesting. There's a lady who works for Amazon. Her apartment's been on the... The block for, I don't know, right. a, a while. And she keeps marking it down. Well, Seattle's one of the hottest real estate markets. supposed to be the right hottest on.
1: real estate market. So, what's right. going on? What do you so, make of that?
4: I think people are leaving. I think people are leaving. Anytime a market gets soft, people are leaving. They're selling and they're leaving. They're going to a place that's easier to live. Or they're moving. They They may be, you know. 10 miles away from where they are right now. Mm-hmm. They buy a cheaper place, they get twice as much. Maybe they have children all of a sudden. Right. And they don't want a, a two bedroom apartment downtown, they want a four bedroom house. Well, it's a so tipping point, right,
0: in terms of prices. There's right. at some point that people say, enough is enough.
4: But how, what, think about what it does to municipalities. Yeah. A particular specialties, municipal bonds. And so if people are moving out and prices are dropping, and you have less revenue from taxes because of that. What happens to municipal services? So it's an important factor.
0: All right. We've just got about 40 seconds left here. What about cannabis, that market? I mean, there's a lot of states betting ultimately about the the tax revenue that's going to come in from that. How do you see it?
4: I see it as not being a big deal. And the reason for it is people are not going to stop testing you when you show up at work. Okay, And if you test positive to cannabis, you're going to get fired. Now, on weekends, do whatever you want. Right. But during the week, I don't see that being a big deal. So not going to be so maybe free-flowing
0: as everybody anticipated.
4: That's correct.
1: And that's our conversation with Charles Durain, president and chief executive officer of Durain Wealth Management, visiting us from Corpus Christi, Texas, such an entertaining guy. And it reminds you that when you understand the underlying municipal bond market, you right. really get a picture of just about every major lever of the economy.
0: Yeah, exactly. Right. Takes it down to the state level. That's for sure. And I think it's interesting. It comes on a day. We talked to New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy yesterday. He and top lawmakers have agreed on a recreational marijuana legislation. They've had a, about a year, more than a year of negotiations. And the bill would tax the drug at $42 an ounce. All of this plays into the kind of uh, tax revenue that cities and states are expecting. Uh, and some of them have had some pretty large estimates. Some of them are being brought down, but it all plays into kind of the municipal credit picture. Uh, so it's important uh, issues to talk about.
1: And also, was interesting to hear some of his thoughts about where Puerto Rico goes from here, because as we know, there are a lot of folks. Speaking of folks who've moved, you know, people who've moved to Puerto Rico for some of that uh, much more favorable favorable tax treatment. Some hedge fund managers, private equity managers, among them, some folks we talk to on a pretty regular basis. Top of the box, top.
0: So, yes, a very busy Tuesday taking a moment to talk about becoming a pop music star in China. It's not at all like becoming a pop star elsewhere. Of course it's not. It's got to be different. So following the trail of the pop singer who is working on conquering China, let's bring in our Lucas Shaw, entertainment reporter with Bloomberg News. He is in our San Francisco Bureau, along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Joel, this is what happens when you send someone to China for a few months. Yeah, exactly.
2: We sent Lucas uh, over there, and and he sent us this pitch that was like hey I found this guy Christopher
1: uh, I think we should do a story about him and we were like who (laughs) who did you find yeah
5: so who's Christopher Lucas uh, Christopher is a 27-year-old guy from from Denmark. He was initially introduced to me uh, by Warner Music Group. They kind of pitched him as the Danish Justin Bieber, uh, and he is you had us you, know,
1: you had us at uh, Danish uh, Justin Bieber. Yes, yeah.
5: blonde hair, blue eyes, good jaw. Kind of women everywhere would would naturally fawn over him, and he became a big star in Denmark several years ago. Tried to cross over into the other big markets in the world: Germany, UK, US. Uh, didn't have much success, and in some cases never even got to try. Uh, and then by some initially by some sheer stroke of good luck, uh, had a song that was at the top of the charts in China and has spent the past four or five years trying to prove that you can become a global pop star by going to kind of China and Asia first after your home country instead of going the normal route of, of Western Europe and the U.S. And, and why do you think he managed to be the one who kind of broke through? Part of it is kind of the, the type of music that he records. More traditional pop ballads and songs are still quite popular across Asia. I think and what China, you're saying are love songs, right? Love songs, <laughs> and and although in some cases these are a lot more suggestive and sexual than you might see in kind of traditional canto or mando pop, which are the names for a couple of the traditional Chinese pop songs. Um, and then he also just worked it. You know, the, the, the main rules for anybody trying to go to China and break it as a music market are that you have to start from scratch because there's no Instagram, no Twitter, no Facebook, none of the in- traditional internet that, that you know. And you have to really embrace local culture and tour cities that your Bruno Mars and Adele's might
1: not want to go to.
0: I'm just going to say tracks from his recent album include Naked Baby Making Interlude and All About Sex. There you have it.
1: (laughs) Those are the songs. I I would say those are more suggestive than uh, one might normally be used to. And what's interesting, too, is that the Chinese market has not been so friendly, Lucas, uh, to say the least, to some well-known Western bands.
5: Yeah, you it's very easy to get banned from China for at least for five, ten years, if not for life. You know, you look at Katy Perry, Bon Jovi, Justin Bieber, all these different acts who've either said wished happy birthday to Dalai Lama and been banned, or I think Katy Perry wore a dress that was in some way evocative of Taiwan and that was enough for her to never be able to perform. So you have to follow some very strict rules. But the opportunity there is now very real. A lot of people in the music business are looking at China kind of the way that the movie business and, and Hollywood did a few years ago. Years ago as, you know, the the next big market, what would soon be the biggest market after the U.S. How how big is the Chinese music market? Right now, it's the, or as of 2017, it's the seventh biggest in the world, like 300 million compared to the U.S., tiny. Uh, But it is growing at a faster rate than just about anywhere. Most people assume it'll be one of the five biggest markets in the world within the next year or two. Okay. So what was your favorite uh, memory from hanging out with Christopher and seeing all of his fans? Uh, either the diehard fan at the end of the show who'd been waiting for hours, waiting just to have this moment where he signed something for her, and she was so baffled as to why I did not want to have something signed myself. She didn't really fully get that I was just there to observe and talk to people. Um, that was one. And then upstairs after the show, of before he did any of those signings, when I was talking about these opportunities and live streaming with him, because a lot of the Chinese music apps, you can go on and... Tape yourself, you know, shaving or cooking. You just stream yourself, and lots of fans will watch. Will watch. And he assumed he had heard that you could get gifts from this, like you would get a sports car or get something like that. And he thought that if somebody <laughs> bought him a sports car, he was going to get an actual sports car. But what it was was just a little virtual car that would show. That up That is right an in the amazing,
1: chat. amazing point in the story where you sort of reveal that, and you can you can kind of see him like sort of shrink a little bit when he realizes that this is. Virtual car. It's not a real car. He loved it though. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Um, But it is, it's such a different market, right? From what we know. You know, when you think about, you know, pop artists or musicians globally, right? A lot of guys, you know, they make it in the United States and then they go elsewhere. China, it's a completely different market.
5: Yeah, and I think that's why his story is so interesting because you have all these people looking at the market, trying to figure out how the heck they get in there. Uh, you know, if, if, yes, you can go and play a show in Beijing or Shanghai, and for the biggest stars in the world, that's probably all they're ever going to need, at least for now. They can make way more money touring in the U.S. and Europe and uh, other parts of the world. But if you're a, a young act and you want to break out and start from scratch in Asia, you have to completely rethink your career and decide if if maybe that's worth it because you're not going to have as much success in saturated markets in the U.S. or Mexico or Brazil.
1: And the thing that I think I appreciated the most, and I guess this brings it back to the little virtual car, though, was he was sort of willing to do things that no one else was willing to do in Just order to make sure he, was, he would lock this thing down and
0: Except become a big a star.
5: Yeah, I mean, he said time and time again, I pro- I interviewed him, I don't know, half a dozen times, and every time he would make some comment about how he didn't think that other people would be willing to do the things that... He would do. And there's, a, there's actually a, an interview that Simon Robson, the head of Warner Music Group's Asian Operations did in Cannes with Christopher a couple of years ago, where they're talking about, this was a, this was uh, earlier in their, in their plan in China, and he said that Christopher was the ideal artist to work with, because he never said no. He would just, if you suggested that he needed to do it, he got it, and he was game, and he was willing to. And lots of other pop stars, even early in their career, they just, they don't want to compromise, or they don't want to put in the effort. They just want to have a good time. And, and and be the pop star you'd see in a movie instead of put in the work. Because what people often lose sight of with the music business is, yes, it's glamorous, and yes, most of these people are beautiful, but you are on the road doing interviews and touring nonstop.
0: So while he ate squid ink jelly, dressed up as a fashionista's personal assistant, he drew the line he would not wear a pink tutu and a crown.
5: A little too emasculating for
2: this <laughs> uh, How far do you think Jason would go, Carol, in order to be a Chinese Pretty pop star? Pretty far. Pretty far. I think yeah? he'd wear the tutu. Go, yeah? I'd, oh, okay. I'd wear the two right. and
0: the crown.
1: Oh yeah, <laughs> we look great. Yeah,
0: I could just totally. See I just
1: it. call that like Thursday. You know, like that's fine. You got to be do JK, better than that. Like yeah. totally, I could yeah. see yeah. it. Exactly, just Jason.
0: Just
2: Jason.
1: <laughs> it's the last name. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Lucas Shaw. Always good to catch up with you, entertainment reporter for Bloomberg, joining us from San Francisco. It is the fruits of his trip, his his work for the three months he spent uh, over in China, working out of our Hong Kong bureau, uh, one of our stars.
0: And the story featured in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine at later this week. You can read it now on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. How about you
1: let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you
3: home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving.
1: Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, so Just drive baby.
4: It's the question that drives
1: us.
4: This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn on Bloomberg Radio.
1: And it is time now for the drive to the close. Alan Bond, managing director and portfolio manager for Jensen Investment Management. Normally he's based in Lake Oswego, Oregon, just outside of Portland. But he's here with Carol and myself in the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio today. So nice to have you with us. Yeah, thanks for having me here. All right. So help us make sense of this market. We saw a down week last week, a little more enthusiasm this week, Boeing uh, notwithstanding, a bunch of Brexit headlines coming at us, maybe giving us a different view of the world. But where you sit, you run a growth fund, uh, I believe. How's the world feel right now?
6: It's feeling better than it did um, around the holiday season last year, that's for sure. So I think, you know, obviously, the markets are off to a good start this year. We think you know a lot of that is just kind of a snapback from the weakness we did see in the fourth quarter. And it's supported by, generally speaking, pretty good earnings growth expectations. But you know we still have a bit of a mixed view. The bull market just turned 10 years old. Uh, it's very long by historical standards. Um, and so we think this is a good time for investors to kind of rethink about risk in their portfolio, um, as we said here today.
0: Okay, so rethink risk for us. <laughs> what does that look like in this environment, especially with, especially since I think you know who to thunk December would have happened, and then the bounce back. You know, uh, it's a one hundred and eighty in terms of our world that investors are living in. So, how do you kind of rethink and calibrate risk accurately in this environment? Well, you know, I
6: think a lot of it kind of comes down to um, uncertainty. And I think we were seeing that today with, with uh, uncertainty about what Brexit's going to look like uh, as that evolves. Uh, but the uncertainty I think we were dealing with back in December was around trade policy uh, and around sort of the direction of the Fed. And, and, and as it looks right now, uh, you know, cooler heads seem to be prevailing on the trade side, and the Fed is, 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 seems to be willing to stay on the sidelines as long as inflation stays under control. And I think that's helped support the market so far this year.
0: So then can we take on more risk knowing that?
6: Yeah, I think it depends on your perspective. So it's kind of a short-term, long-term thing. And and our focus is very much on the long-term as investors. And so our long-term view is that uh, we've enjoyed the run we've had. Uh, it's been a very good bull market, but it's getting old, and, and the clock feels like it's ticking a bit. Uh, in the short term, it, you do it's,
0: know that two years ago we could have had this exact same conversation.
6: We could have had the exact same conversation, <laughs> but we're two years we two years further down. We almost had it. No. We almost had a bear market in December. We yeah. were you know, decimal points away from that. So,
0: but was it was it J Powell on sixty Minutes? Did he talk about the market kind of continuing potentially?
6: Yeah, I mean, I, can't I, who I guess it I, was. I, I, there's there's. You know, if if you think about kind of near term in the market, again supported by what looks like uh, good earnings growth expectations, uh, an economy that domestically is okay. We are seeing some signs of softness, um, but I think I think the market's going to start start thinking about earnings and and real you know business fundamentals uh, as we move forward
1: throughout the year and how that evolves. All right. So talk to us about some names that you like in this sort of environment. You know, one thing you shared with us ahead of your visit here was enterprise software. IT services is an interesting area for you. Clearly, that would imply that companies are still going to be spending uh, on technology. How do you think about that more specifically?
6: Yeah, so we think about that, you know, on a company-specific basis. Uh, One of the companies we think that should benefit from that trend is our holding in Cognizant Technologies. Mm -hmm. Uh, They are an IT consulting and outsourcing firm. They're a U.S.-based business, but most of their professionals are in India. Uh, We think that business model allows them to be nimble and to be cost-effective in serving global enterprises. And they benefit from the trend where businesses around the world are using technology to make themselves more efficient, more cost-effective. And we think that trend continues to have legs, and we think Cognizant is very well-positioned to uh, uh, support that trend.
0: What you're thinking about BDX, Becton Dickinson, that's another one that you like.
6: Sure. So uh, Beckton's the top holding in our fund and has been yeah. for, for quite a while. Uh, they are the world's leading producer of needles and syringes. They dominate the the, the the global market in terms of market share, and that's important because it's a scale business. And it's also a business that's characterized by recurring revenue in the sense that a lot of their products are disposable, so you have to continue to buy them repeatedly. And we think they're very well positioned to benefit from just global growth in healthcare spending. Uh, they're they're a global business with very good infrastructure around the world, uh, and they've been able to do a good job of growing along with uh, global growth in healthcare.
1: One more name I want to ask about: United Technologies conglomerates. I feel like you say the word conglomerate, mm-hmm. and given everything that's happened with GE over the past couple of years, like oh god, conglomerates. But yeah. Uh, UTX has done okay? Yeah, and, and that's an interesting
6: part of it. It's an important part of the story with UTX right now. So UTX is a conglomerate. It's a global business with a wide range of businesses, you know, elevators and escalators to aircraft engines and uh, things of that nature. Now, what we think about holistically with that business is that their businesses are all characterized by some degree of capital intensity, and we think that creates uh, good entry barriers for an entrenched player like UTX. Uh, But the stock has been a bit weak recently. Uh, They announced they're going to break the company up into three parts uh, late last Mm -hmm. year. There's been mixed responses to that. But we think it's really important to look at the underlying business, which is gaining momentum, specifically in their aircraft engine business. And when we look at the business holistically, we we think the shares are undervalued, and we think this is a good opportunity.
0: I do want to point out that your fund, the Jensen Quality Growth Fund, really a top performer in the last five years. You're in the 87th percentile, according to Bloomberg data. And what's interesting, it's, it's a growth fund, but I'm looking at the names like beckton dickinson pepsico microsoft striker united technologies they're not your typical growth names that we think of which is tends to be the fang stocks right it's something different
6: Right. So the the the, key, the the key differentiation there is quality growth. So we're focused on what we think are high quality businesses. Yeah. <laughs> Zing. Yeah, well coming, done. Yeah, coming in was, hot was, from suburban that was, Portland. That was that was as a point of distinction, not a derogatory <laughs> comment on anyone else. No, but, but 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 it's focused on first and foremost for us is focus on quality attributes. So competitive advantages, high returns on equity, free cash flow generation. Those attributes we think first and foremost are important for quality, but they also position a company very well. So we're focused on companies that have what we think are predictable and stable growth prospects, as opposed to maybe some of the faint stocks that have maybe more explosive growth prospects, but uh, uh, you know a little less certain in our opinion. So that that's the differentiation for us. And, and then we also are really uh, pay attention a lot to valuation, and we want to make sure we're paying a fair price. And
0: Alan, you keep it to twenty-five to thirty, correct? Yes. Um, just real quickly, twenty seconds left here. What were you guys doing in December? Were you adding to your positions? What were, or or did you just kind of stay the course? Yeah,
6: for the most. Part, part we stayed the course um we've tried to be opportunistic about uh t- trading around valuation we we you know we we see some stocks get ahead of themselves some yeah. stocks like utx where i think we think there's opportunities uh so we trim and we add we do that regularly uh but we try not to be reactive and so that was kind of our, our view in in december
0: all right couldn't leave it on that note good to take talk names with you have a seat yeah. poem alan bond okay. thank you he's managing director portfolio manager of jensen investment Manager, based in lake oswego